Welcome to A Vague Knowledge of Everything, episode 16. Uh, we are going to be talking about a subject today that is going to make us both pretty angry. Uh, so just so you know that going in, uh, but it's really interesting. It's really good information to know, and it definitely affects you. So uh, welcome again. My name is Rosie. My name is Hope, and uh, welcome to Hope's Hot Mad Corner. <laughs> Yay! Okay. <laughs> so we came to this subject because a couple weeks ago I said to Rosie, hey, I'm reading this book. It's really interesting. I have to read it for class. I'm probably going to want to talk about it. And boy, howdy, was I right. So the book that I had to read for my research book is called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. Um, and so it's due today. So I've read most of it, but, um, <laughs> uh, I got to the important parts and I, this is, I'm so mad. It took me until I was 28 to read this. This should be like required for all freshmen. This should be required like as a contract, whenever you come into the world as a human. And and I have like, not yet read it. And I actually, I did not know about this person and this, and this whole issue. So like to me, and I'm older than you. So I went longer than 28 years. I went 32 years without knowing. So yeah, this, enlighten me. <laughs> okay. This paperback I bought on thrift books for less than $5, which now that I've read, it Ooh. seems like an atrocity because of the amount of information I'm already hot, man. I'm already like my palms are sweaty because I'm getting heated. Okay, let's uh, let's give some background. So, Rebecca Skloot, I'm going to read her biography on the back. Also, everything I'm saying, I'm getting just from the book. I haven't done any outside research. I haven't done anything like that. I'm just reading from this book, which was required reading for a uh, class. So... I this is what's in the back book, of it. Though I, I I did listen to a couple podcasts about this subject. Um, all of them reference that it does seem like this is a very well researched book, to my knowledge. Um, so and to everyone else's knowledge, I think so. I think why so it took her a decade to write this book, and I think why this is like the cornerstone for this story is because it's the first one. She's a white lady. Henrietta Lacks is a black lady. And so this story is about how the cells, here's what happened. Here's the quick and dirty of what happened and why this story is important. Henrietta Lacks was a lady in Baltimore who had cervical cancer. And the doctor who was treating her took some of that, like a slice of the um, tumor. And then from those cells, we got a bunch of vaccines. Like the polio vaccine came from these cells. Mm -hmm. The HPV, remember how HPV was a big thing like 10 or 15 years ago when we all had to go get the vaccine? That was from HeLa. Mm -hmm. Anytime, HeLa is like the, the name of the cells that came from that uh, like yeah. tumor. So, so if I were to, you would be Roab, you'd be Rube. And then I would be Hoko if I was going to have cells named after me. <laughs> so well, that's why. Although now I have a different last name. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. Roku. I might be, be like Roko because it's two last names, Kusan O'Brien. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, so what happened was they took a slice from this and for, okay, I'm just going to get into it. Let's get into it, sis. Let's so get into it. at the beginning of the book, um, it talks about everything that it could like 
solve. All right. So mostly, okay. What do you remember from me being on the boat? What was I always talking about? What was the thing that was very important for me? Consent. Everybody has consent for all things all the time. I'm okay. all about. I was like, there's a like I would be telling <laughs> the importance of tomatoes <laughs> and consent. <laughs> okay, so yeah, when we'd be on the boat, I'd be talking to the high school boys and telling them about consent. They're like, no, that's just a thing you use, like you know, elsewhere. I'm like, nah, that's a thing you use for like all things all the time. You can't just like assume somebody wants what you're about to give them. And I know that sounds sexual, but that's in terms of like tickling or like teasing, which is things that happen a lot with high school boys and girls. So this is happening at the beginning of the fifties. And this is everything that we've gotten from those particular cells. So this is from the book. Also, I'm going to apologize. I'm very good at reading to myself and I'm very good at talking off the cuff. I am not very good at reading off a page. I stutter a lot and it's something I need to work on. I'm terrible at reading out loud. So just bear with me. I'm sorry in advance, but okay. So her oh, cells stop. were part of research into the genes that cause cancer and those that suppress it. They helped develop drugs for treating herpes, leukemia, influenza, hemophilia, and Parkinson's disease. And they've been used to study lactose digestion, sexually transmitted diseases, appendicitis, human longevity, mosquito mating, and the negative cellular effects of working in sewers. Their chromosomes and proteins have been studied with such detail and precision that scientists know their every quirk. Like guinea pigs and mice, Henrietta's cells have become the standard laboratory workhorse. Her HeLa cells were one of the most important things that happened to medicine in the last hundred years. And this is from a scientist. And it says, then matter of factly, almost as an afterthought, he said she was a black woman. He erased her name in one, one fast swipe and blew the chalk from his hands. Class was over. So she first learned about this in like an undergrad course she was taking. Rebecca Skloot, the author, went on to like get her um, MFA in biology. And I think she got an MFA in creative writing. So she's really... That's why this book is important because this is really well situated for her to write this story because what she did was she actually interacted with the family and she got their side of things. Oh, I was just, I was going to say, it sounds like she's, um, she's particularly well suited to uh, be writing a book that contains so much science because she's studied writing and science. So it really is perfect. And the fact that she actually talked to her family is um, not by, and by that, I don't mean um, Rebecca Skloot's family, but, um, but the family of Henrietta Lacks. So the Lacks yeah. yes. She always refers to them as the Lacks And the thing about her is she got interested in this when she was still in her twenties. Like everything she did, I think was in the nineties and like maybe the early aughts. So she was doing this, like, I think right after she graduated, she was very young and she was traveling a lot between, I think she was going to Pitt at the time, which is also the other interesting thing about this book. (laughs) She's talking about going from like Pittsburgh to Baltimore, which I did for a long time visiting Griffin and one of the main the main doctors in this was a guy who was from Pittsburgh. So I'm reading this from a school in Boston while I'm living in the South. And I was like, wow, <laughs> look at this. <laughs> but so what's interesting about Rebecca Skloot's version is there had been so many 
white reporters going down and talking to the lax family about their mom and all the cells and stuff, but they were just using them as parts of the story. They didn't actually care about the people. And I think that's why I have to read this for research and social work and the importance of like social work ethics and why it's dicey and can be very slippery and sticky talking to people and researching them. I think that's why we had to read this book first thing in the semester. So what Rebecca did, or, whoo, I dropped my microphone. What it looks like she did was she took time to get to know the family. And I think she became a resource in telling them what was going on. And she was like, I want to tell your story. I want you to be involved in this. I don't want to just know about, I do want to know about your mom, but there's no Henrietta without all the laxes and there's no laxes without Henrietta. Like they're one in the same. And I think a lot of what happened was they were excluded from the story. So the big takeaway from what happened was that they didn't get anything from the scientists using Henrietta's cells. They're living in poverty at the time this book was written and like they didn't receive any monetary anything. So, okay, I have, yes, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I was just gonna add to that. You'd say they're living in poverty and I like one of the podcasts I listened to said that uh, one of her sons was homeless at the time. So like, like obviously in need and no move was made to give them any kind of, uh, like any any kind of financial uh, gain from this, which, you know, like they did something illegal at that hospital. You can't just take people's biological, uh, right. you can't take a part of a person's body <laughs> and keep it and use it for science and uh, not let them know and then, you know, make a deal with them as, as to how you're going to compensate them. Um, that's just reprehensible. Okay, I have bookmarked a bunch of pages just to like get through the story and give the highlights so we can uh, dissect what's going on. So Henrietta was saying to her, her cousins, she had a knot inside of her. She knew something was going on. The other part about this book that's really interesting is talking about how Henrietta was like really spiritual and kind of like, you know, the ooky spooky witchy type stuff, which I was like, yes, I'm here for this in a book about feelings and research that there's like witchy, ooky spooky stuff. <laughs> but so she, it sounded like she was really intuitive. So here's, here's what happened. Okay. On February 5th, 1951, after Jones got Henrietta's biopsy report back from the lab, he called her and told her it was malignant. Henrietta didn't tell anyone what Jones said and no one asked. She simply went on with her day as if nothing had happened, which was just like her. No sense upsetting anyone over something she could deal with herself, which by the way, what, what, what a female experience that is just being like, no, I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm just going to deal with this. Like I, we've all done that. If you, yeah. If you identify as a lady, you've done that. That's just that's just how it is. Yeah. This book. It just it comes back to what we're learning about in terms of intersectionality. How there's no oppression in just one form. Like it all it intersects mm-hmm. with feminism and like poverty and class and race and gender and like everything is connected and nothing is good. <laughs> That's what intersectionality is. Okay, everything that's happening. But we're trying to make it better. 
everything that's happening is at Johns Hopkins. Just so everything that happens with Henrietta is in Baltimore. She grew up in Clover, Virginia, but she's living in Baltimore whenever she's 30 and this is happening to her. Okay. Henrietta went straight to the admissions desk and told the receptionist she was there for her treatment. She then signed a form with the words operation permit at the top of the page. It said, I hereby give consent to the staff of the Johns Hopkins hospital to perform any operative procedures and under any anesthetic, either local or general that they may deem necessary in the proper surgical care and treatment of blank. Henrietta printed her name in the blank space. A witness with illegible handwriting signed a line at the bottom of the form and Henrietta signed another. So that was as much consent as she could give. And it was very ambiguous if that counts as consent. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because it just basically says like, we're going to do whatever we want, which is another thing that the author touches on is that during this time, if a white doctor said something to a black patient, they were just going to be like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I'm not going to, what am I going to say to you? No, like they didn't, they weren't informed enough to know that they had consent and that they could say no. And that doctors weren't always going to have their best interest at heart. Um, This reminds me a lot of the Tuskegee syphilis studies. So we can touch on that at the end because it's just a whole lot of systemic racism. Oh, we gonna get to that. Don't worry, because I've also been studying that in the middle of all of this, because of course I have. (laughs) So um there's a really great there's a really great two-part um podcast uh about that um it's um it it is two white people um but um but it's uh it's called you're wrong about and they do just really great fact checking of history so i I would look into that for if anyone wants more info on the tuskegee syphilis study but yeah sorry let's get back to henrietta Lacks. So then it talks about how they're going to treat this cancer. She has a tumor on her cervix and it's a big ass tumor. Apparently the doctor had never seen anything like it. And I think later they discovered when they looked at pictures and they looked at like the records and stuff, this was HPV cancer. So like that's what she had, but they didn't have the words for it or the knowledge for it back then. So this is what happened. Mm-hmm. So they were going to put radium Radium at the time was known to kill cancer. So they just like pretty much filled her body up with radium and they were like, this is fine. So she's in there with a, she's in the colored section of the hospital and then she's being operated on by a bunch of white doctors. Okay. With Henrietta unconscious on the operating table in the center of the room, her feet in stirrups, the surgeon on duty, Dr. Lawrence Wharton Jr., sat on the stool between her legs. He peered inside Henrietta, dilated her cervix, and prepared to treat her tumor. But first, though no one had told Henrietta that Tillind was collecting samples or asked if she wanted to be a donor, Wharton picked up a sharp knife and shaved two dime-sized pieces of tissue from Henrietta's cervix, one from her tumor and one from the healthy cervical tissue nearby. Then he placed the samples in a glass dish. Wharton slipped a tube filled with radium inside Henrietta's cervix and sewed it in place. He sewed a plaque filled with radium to the outer surface of her cervix and packed another plaque against it. He slid several rolls of gauze inside her vagina to keep help keep the radium in place, then the threaded a catheter into her bladder so she could urinate without disturbing the treatment. So that's the moment that uh, 
changed everything. That's and it's given very early. So you're like, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um. Okay. So then she starts. Did you want to say something? No, I'm just having an angry fit. I'm literally just shaking my fist like a kid who's mad because I just like I I couldn't think of anything constructive to say. So I was like. Go on. I love it. It's so Yes, I know. I yeah. I'm aware. Okay, so then I'm skipping around a lot, but I'm just trying to get to all the good parts so we can just talk about it overall. So she starts telling. So she told her cousins she got a knot inside of her. She went to the hospital. They found the cancer. She got this done. They took the tissues, and then they, she kept coming back for treatments. But she was getting a lot of radium treatment, and so she was. And it was a whole thing about like she has five kids. Her husband works, so she had to wait for him to be done at the hospital. So she got started going to her cousin Margaret's house when she's getting treatments and um okay and also her husband's running around on her her husband's also her cousin so that's a whole other thing like that's a lot of that's just what happened back in the day so and her husband's name is day Soon, however, days running around was the least of Henrietta's worries. That short walk to Margaret started feeling longer and longer, and all Henrietta wanted to do when she got there was sleep. One day, she almost collapsed a few blocks from Hopkins, and it took near, nearly an hour to make the walk. After that, she started taking cabs. One afternoon, as Henrietta lay on the couch, she lifted her shirt to show Margaret and Sadie what the treatments had done to her. Sadie gasped. The, get, the skin from Henrietta's breast to her pelvis was charred a deep black from the radiation. The rest of her body was in its natural shade, more the color of fawn than coal. Henny, she whispered, they burnt you black as tar. Henry, Henrietta just nodded and said, Lord, it just feels like that blackness be spreading all inside of me. <sighs> so they were uh, not doing uh, right by Henrietta, as we can tell. Um, and... Uh, plot twist and spoiler alert things don't look up after this this is just it just gets worse in terms of what the doctors did to her so they're trying to do stuff eventually she's just like at the hospital all the time because they're giving her radium treatments and they're just like taking her mm -hmm. blood and doing all this stuff and it's upsetting for her the kids to come visit her because she like cries when they leave and stuff and eventually like the doctors start to give up so i'm gonna read this last part oh, okay the doctors tried in vain to ease her suffering demerol does not seem to touch the pain one wrote so he tried morphine this doesn't help too much either he gave her dromoran this stuff works he wrote but not for long eventually one of her doctors tried injecting pure alcohol straight into her spine alcohol injections ended in failure he wrote new tumors seem to appear daily on her lymph nodes hip bones labia and she spent most days with a fever of up to 105 her doctor stopped the radiation treatment and seemed as defeated by the cancer as she was henrietta is still a miserable specimen they wrote she groans she is constantly nauseated and claims she vomits everything she eats patient acutely upset very anxious as, par as far as i can tell we are doing all that can be done that's true because you caused all these problems <laughs> Um, there's no, yes, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to also just point out and, and I'm not sure why they phrased it this way. She claims she vomits everything she eats. If she's in the hospital at this point, you know, if she's vomiting, it's like, oh yeah. I, 
so that I don't know, like that that language there is just like, and it might be me being a little more sensitive and stuff, and also knowing the outcome no. of it. But like, no. but I think that there's something like there's some sort of like racism and classism there, and maybe sexism. I don't know, but it's just like there's 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 some sort of ism that is making them be like mm, she claims she's doing, you know, like da, 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 da. but like. Like, like they would know. Just ask the nurses. This is is, well. Here's the problem. So this is like a page or two earlier, where she, the his doctor was claiming she was getting any care any white patient would have. Wrong. And several studies have shown that black patients were treated at the were treated and hospitalized at later stages of their illness than white patients. And once hospitalized, they got fewer pain medications and at higher mortality rates. So. A few weeks after the doctor told her she was fine, she went back to Hopkins saying that the discomfort she complained about last time was now an ache in both sides, but the doctor's entry was identical to the one weeks earlier. No evidence of recurrence returned in one month. She came back two and a half weeks weeks later and she couldn't pee anymore. She was having, she was having trouble walking. The doctor passed a catheter to empty her bladder and sent her home. And then she came back three days later, a doctor pressed on her abdomen and felt a stony hard mass. An x-ray showed that it was attached to her pelvic wall, nearly blocking her urethra. The doctor on duty called for Jones and several others who treated Henrietta. They all examined her and looked at an x-ray. Inoperable, they said. Only weeks after a previous entry declared her healthy, one of the doctors wrote, the patient looks chronically ill. She is obviously in pain. He sent her home to bed. All right. Okay. So that was happening weeks beforehand. And then, so George Guy is the guy who took the cells and he's the one that's going to be like the the guy who gets things going he's the one who distributes the cells mm-hmm. he discovers what's happening to them um he discovers that they're basically immortal that these cancer cells just will not die no matter what he does to them they just won't die and they keep reproducing which is why medical centers now have them still in their labs yeah and i was just gonna say like yeah that's like the key point that that we need to get across is that like the yeah <laughs> they're different it's not like normal cells they were doing something amazing and they that's why they were able to keep them and that's really awesome and that's like really like yeah you really should do research if you have those kinds of cells but the way it was collected and the way that it was distributed and the way that they treated her was reprehens- reprehensible but she had yeah. very special cells so then yes so then there's no record that George Guy ever visited Henrietta in the hospital or said anything to her about her cells. And everyone I talked to who might know they said who might know said that Guy and Henrietta never met. Everyone that is except Laura Aurelian, a mi- microbiologist who is Guy's college colleague at Hopkins. I'm so bad at reading out loud. <laughs> he says, I'll never forget it. George told me he leaned over Henrietta's bed and said, Your cells will make you immortal. He told Henrietta her cells would help save the lives of countless people, and she smiled. She told him she was glad her pain would come to some good for someone. I just, it's just, it's just all bad. It's just all bad. Also, like, that's one account, and it's a little bit too, like, wrapped up neatly with a bow for her to say that, because that absolves him of any guilt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. Okay. By September, Henrietta's body was almost engulfed entirely by 
was almost entirely taken over by tumors. They'd grown on her diaphragm, her bladder, her lungs. They'd blocked her intestines and made her body swell like she was six months pregnant. She got one bl blood transfusion after another because her kidneys could no longer filter the toxins from her blood, leaving her nauseated from the poison of her own body. She got so much blood that one doctor wrote a note in her record stopping all transfusions until her deficit with the blood bank was made up. Like, what? what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay but then after that once like people caught when like people from her community caught when they like stopped work that day and like eight huge black men showed up and were like we're donating blood right now for henrietta so it wasn't all bad okay um, well that's good yeah so she she had good people on her side Oh my god, this part. Okay, we're gonna get to the part where we talk about this. I just need to get through all the parts of the book that are upsetting. Okay. Mary is George Guy's assistant. She helps with all the stuff. So there's this lady scientist assistant that helps with everything. So this is after she's died horrifically. She does not go quietly. She dies horrifically and is like screaming and like, like her cousins are there to put a pillow in her mouth so she doesn't like bite on her own tongue and stuff. She does not go quietly. She goes very violently. Um, but so this is during her autopsy where they just like literally sliced her in half and like had her hands up above her head and stuff. Okay. Uh, Mary stood beside Wilbur waiting as he sewed Henrietta's abdomen closed. She wanted to run out of the morgue and back to the lab, but instead she stared at Henrietta's arms and legs, anything to avoid looking into her lifeless eyes. Then Mary's gaze fell on Henrietta's feet and she gasped. Henrietta's toenails were covered in chipped, bright red nail polish. When I saw those toenails, Mary told me years later, and nearly fainted, I thought, oh, geez, she's a real person. I started imagining her sitting in the, her bathroom painting those toenails, and it hit me for the first time that those cells we'd been working on with all this time and sending all over the world, they came from a live woman. I'd never thought of it that way. Just just white people being just the worst <laughs> oh. oh i mean like i guess when you're in the medical field you kind of have to do that so you can do your job but like the fact that like just the fact that it's a black lady that made all of this happen and they didn't even like they're like oh wait this is a person this is a human person i was like mm-hmm <sighs> fuck are you hot mad yet <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah okay here's some here's some kind of good stuff um so they created this guy wanted to create a center for like HeLa cells um, so they can like, you know, research them and deliver them and just have like a center for all these cells so that they can do scientific stuff with that. Um, and this is also around the time when polio was getting really big and they wanted to do something. So they set up a distribution center at the Tuskegee Institute, one of the most prestigious black universities in the country. The NFIP chose the Tuskegee Institute for the project because of Charles Bynum, director of Negro activities for the foundation. Bynum, a science teacher and civil rights activist who is the first black foundation executive in the country, wanted the center to be located at Tuskegee because it would provide hundreds of thousands of dollars in funding, many jobs, and training opportunities for young black scientists. 
So the first place, the Tuskegee staff grew to 35 scientists and technicians who produced 20,000 tubes of HeLa, about 6 trillion cells every week. It was the first ever cell production factory, and it started with a single vial of HeLa that Guy had sent Shearer in the first shipping experiment not long after Henrietta's death. With those cells, scientists helped prove the Salk vaccine effective. Soon, the New York Times would run pictures of black women hunched over microscopes examining cells, black hands holding vials of HeLa. So, black scientists and technicians, many of them women, used cells from a black woman to help save the lives of millions of Americans, most of them white. And they did so on the same campus and at the very same time that the state officials were conducting the infamous Tuskegee syphilis <sighs> studies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you yeah. want to talk about the syphilis studies? Do you um, want to take this part? <laughs> sure. I Okay. I, so I haven't actually, I have two books about this um, sitting. Uh, I, I think they're downstairs actually, but I, I have two books on this that I'm going to read, you know, when I have time to read all the books, um, uh, <laughs> um, which will probably just be the next time I'm like, I have a cold or something. But, um, but b so from the, from the reading that I've done and from uh, the, the two part uh, episode, I guess it's not a series of it's two parts, but whatever. But the thing that, uh, that you're wrong about did, uh, what that taught me is that there were 600 black men in this study, 400 of whom were, uh, positive for syphilis. And they, I believe they were not told they had syphilis. Um, they believe they were, they were either not told or they were told, but they were also told they were getting treatment. I forget which way it was. Um, but I know that they, they believed that the doctors were actually doing something for them and they weren't the entire time. Um, they, they were actually like the stated purpose of the study, um, which was not something they shared with the, the the people in the study but um the stated purpose of the study was to study the effects of untreated syphilis in the negro male like god it's terrible there was um there there was a nurse i think actually who um her uh, nurse rivers who she knew what was going on and i think she even saved one dude from it at one point and was like you should go get a penicillin shot but like other than that they actively stopped um, these syphilitic men from getting uh, any kind of medication for it. Like it wasn't like they weren't, they just weren't giving it. Like they said they were giving them medication. They gave them placebos instead. They told them they had quote unquote bad blood, which is the name of one of the books that I'm um, going to be reading. And it's just, it's horrible. And, and we mm -hmm. should do a, an episode on it at some point when I have more of like a, a, <laughs> a broad overview but oh, yeah. like it's it's absolutely terrible and it's systemic racism like it's hard evidence of systemic racism because like these doctors who were doing the study were like well there's no way that their bodies are the same as ours because they're black and like literally we're like oh then it's fine to just study a disease that is going completely untreated in them and tell them that we're treating it it's just it's so fucked up i yeah anyway so that's like it's in terrible. a super small nutshell what that was during that study, the the penicillin cure was discovered. And then they these doctors wrote to doctors all over the country and like gave them a list and was like, if this person comes in seeking treatment, don't give it to them. We're doing a study. And they're like, okay, like, what? What? And a lot of people didn't figure it out until it came out in newspapers years later. Mm -hmm. They didn't know. Okay, that's oh, a whole other hot mad corner. And the whole, um, 
Okay, so and one of the most horrifying things of this, like this study started in the 30s, I believe, and it was there. They only issued an apology for it. Um, that was during the Clinton administration. So it was a long fucking time, and basically all that those families have gotten. And you have to understand, like, so and, and I'm not saying you obviously, but like the listener, um, what they need to understand is that like <laughs> syphilis is a disease you can pass to people. Like it's not, it's not something that just you know, it's not something like you're born with and you just have this genetic thing. It is an STD um, or STI, um, depending on which nomenclature they're using now. But uh, but it's something that can be passed to other people. So leaving these men untreated meant that a lot of other people were also going to be put in danger of getting syphilis um like their partners specifically black women children yeah exactly like like but but the medical industry did not care and i and i would assume a lot of lawmakers just didn't care also because like otherwise how can this be allowed because these people are black like that's why they don't care so Uh it's cut and dried there's no nuance to that (laughs) so the thing about these cancer cells that they got um the author says to understand why cellular cloning was important you need to know two things first hela didn't grow from one of henrietta's cells it grew from a sliver of her tumor which was a cluster of cells cells often behave differently even if they're all from the same sample which means some grow faster than others so what's important about her cells was that they would not die like they threw um Researchers began exposing them to viruses of all kinds, herpes, measles, mumps, fowl, pox, equine encephalitis, to study how each one entered cells, reproduced, and spread. So what they were able to do was they figured out how to freeze cells during this time. Like they would freeze HeLa cells. And what that does is she describes it as hitting a pause button whenever cells are going through like, you know, reproduction, mitosis, whatever, all that stuff I should have paid attention to in biology was happening. And so... That happened, and so they were able to, it basically created cell tissue standards. They were able to study cells because these ones, they just, like, had an unlimited supply of them that they could freeze, and they could just, like, do whatever they wanted with them, and they were able to garner, like, so much knowledge from one lady's cancer cells. Like, that's it, because they wouldn't die. We still have them. That they just won't die. So... That's why this is important because the just the fact that they had an unlimited supply of like cells that they could study. That's how we got all of this information, all of this knowledge. They sent it up into space. They like sent it like yeah. physically up in the air. The it's not an airplane. What's it called? A rocket. And then they shot it into space itself to see what would happen to human cells when they're exposed to like space and stuff. They like it was all this stuff. All this stuff happened with these cells. Um, so then people started wondering where these cells came from and guy, this is the one good thing he did. He would not release her name. He wouldn't give them a name. He gave a fake name to throw people off this, off of Henrietta, even though she was dead at that point, he like did this real, he was like, (sighs) I don't know. This guy like tried to write him a letter saying like, it's not a big deal if you release this information. And so he said, this guy's name was Berg, who wrote the letter to Guy and said, um, Berg didn't explain how releasing Henrietta's name to the public would have protected the privacy rights 
or rights of her family. In fact, doing so would have forever connected Henrietta and her family with the cells and any medical information eventually derived from their DNA. That wouldn't have protected the Lax's privacy, but it certainly would have changed the course of their lives. They would have learned that Henrietta's cells were still alive and that they'd been taken, bought, sold, and used in research without her knowledge or theirs. So he was protecting her, but what that meant was nobody knew that the, like the Laxes didn't know this was happening. Um, and her husband after her death had to be convinced for her to do an odd, for them to do an autopsy on her. And he wanted to be like, no, but then a cousin was like, it's probably better. And so he was like, okay, but they didn't know they had taken these cultures. And so guy thought he was doing right by them and their privacy by not saying her name. But all that did was put the family into more secrecy. They didn't know that all this stuff was happening with their mom and wife's cells. So, yes. You are giving him a lot more credit than I am. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't read the book, but like, to me, I'm like, mm, what, did he actually think he was protecting her? Or was he telling himself it was protecting her because he felt guilty about the fact that he like, took her cells without asking and didn't tell her because I still don't believe that he told her. Mm -hmm. Yep. Ooh. Okay. So there's this other doctor later on in 63. This is in the sixties now. So this doctor is taking HeLa cells and injecting them into patients to see if they can fight off cancer. So there's a whole nother one where just doctors are doing whatever they want. Um, But the thing is, <laughs> this guy's name was Southam. So <laughs> okay. The thing is, he's working at the Jew- Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital in Brooklyn. So just remember that. Remember what kind of hospital he's working in in the 60s. This is very important. The plan uh, okay. was that Mandel would have doctors on staff inject 22 JCDH patients with cancer cells for Southam. But when he instructed his staff to give the injections without telling patients they contained cancer cells, three young Jewish doctors refused saying they wouldn't conduct research on patients without their consent. All three knew about the research Nazis had done on Jewish prisoners. They also knew about the famous Nuremberg trials. The Nuremberg trials, for those who don't know, is what happened after World War II, where the world found out what the Nazis were doing to Jewish people. And so they went to these trials and they were like saying all the fucked up shit that they had done to Jewish people because they didn't see them as people. It says their crime was conducting unthinkable research on Jews without the consent, sewing siblings together to create Siamese twins, dissecting people alive to study organ function. I know. I did not know, know about the Siamese twin thing. Oh. I didn't either. Okay. So basically what this does is it starts creating rights for people when they go see doctors. Um, so they set forth to make the Nuremberg Code. The first line in that code says, the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. The Hippocratic Oath written in the 4th century BC didn't require patient consent. And though the American Medical Association had issued rules protecting laboratory animals in 1910, no such rules existed for humans until Nuremberg. It was, But the thing was, it wasn't law. It was a list of recommendations. And... Um, 
Many American researchers, including Southam, claimed not to know it existed. Those who did know about it often thought of it as the Nazi code, something that applied to barbarians and dictators, not to American doctors. So, that's what that is. Everything's bad. This is just everything's bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you want to hear something later? So, Southam and Mendel, the two guys in charge of this, were... They went to court and they got suspended. But then the suspensions of Southam and Mandel's license w- licenses were stayed, leaving them both one year on one-year probation instead. And the case seemed to have little impact on Southam's professional standing. Soon after the end of his probationary period, Southam was elected president of the American Association for, Research- for Cancer Research. But his case oh. brought about one of the largest oversight changes in the history of experimentation on human beings so if you're a white man you can literally get away with anything and then get promoted for it i have to take my sweatshirt off i'm too hot mad now i'm sorry give me one second (laughs) Mm it's so bad it's so bad everybody needs to read this book it's too important. Okay, let us continue. I'm almost done looking at all the quote stuff, and then we can like really dissect mm-hmm. and get into it. But I just <sighs> um. Okay, so Bobette Bobette Lax is married to Henrietta's son Lawrence. This is her oldest mm-hmm. son, so um, Bobette's her daughter, and she's talking about. There's myths that go around in the black community that Hopkins is stealing black people for research, which wasn't entirely unfounded. It wasn't as bad, but they were doing shady stuff as evidenced by our previous stories. Um, So this is when the author is like talking to the laxes in um, Laxtown. Okay. As the laxmen talked about Hopkins and insurance, that's where they live. That's where they live. There's an oh. area called Laxtown. That's real. I wasn't. That wasn't me being funny. That's that's where they all live. <laughs> I thought you just okay. like, forgot the name of the town, and you're like, you know, <laughs> no. Um, so Bobette's talking, and she goes, "My pressure's going up, and I'm not going to die over this." You know, the whole thing just wasn't worth getting riled up over. She said, but she couldn't help herself. Everybody knew black people were disappearing because Hopkins was experimenting on them. She yelled, "I believe a lot of it was true." Probably so, Sonny said, another one of her sons. A lot of it might have been a myth, too. You never know. But one thing we do know, themselves about my mother ain't no myth. Day thumped his cane again, her husband. You know what is a myth? Bobette snapped from the recliner. Everybody always saying Henrietta Lacks donated those cells. She didn't donate nothing. They took them and didn't ask. What would really upset Henrietta is the fact that Dr. DeGuy never told the family anything. We didn't know nothing about those cells, and he didn't care. They just rubbed us the wrong way. I just kept asking everybody, why didn't they say anything to the family? They knew how to contact us. If Dr. Guy wasn't dead, I think I would have killed him myself. (laughs) I mean, same. (laughs) Nice. And then, so, Bobette, this is how she found out about the cells. She was having lunch with her friend's brother-in-law who worked at a medical center. And so they were talking about family and stuff. And she goes, my, mem- my mother-in-law is Henrietta Lacks, but I know you're not talking about her. She's been dead almost 25 years. He's talking about an article that he just read about cells that came from a woman named Henrietta Lacks. And he goes, Henrietta Lacks is your mother-in-law. He asked, suddenly excited, did she die of cervical cancer? Bobette stopped smiling and snapped, how'd you know that? 
this is how they found out. So then he tells her about all the mm-hmm. stuff going on with her cells and like everything. So she like runs over to the family and is like, did any of you know about this shit that's going on with? <sighs> it's just so bad. It's just so bad. It is so bad. Okay. And then, so what happened in the medical community was they didn't realize that all these cells that they were using, cause they went all over the world. They went all over the country. Nobody mm-hmm. like, it wasn't clear that these were all from one person. So everything that they used to discover like liver cancer, polio, vaccines, all this stuff that came from it, they didn't realize it was from one cancer culture. So they're at this conference and the guy is like, all of your research is contaminated with one cell of cancer. And everybody's like, that's not true. And then he's like, yes, it is. So then the medical community is like rocked by this contamination stuff. And this one guy is like, well, if we just get the blood from the family, then we can study that instead and see like what, what's going on with that. So then the, and they sent an Asian scientist, which is important because these are Southern black people talking to an Asian scientist. And there's a ton of language barrier there. People in mm-hmm. the family couldn't always understand what they were saying because his Southern draw was so strong. And they sent somebody who can kind of speak English. This isn't me being racist. I'm telling you there's yeah. a language barrier here. Because they sent somebody to draw blood from them and never told them what was going on. Oh, yeah. No, I I was just going to, in the midst of all of this misery, slip in just a fun little anecdote that I, uh, when I worked at Mount Rushmore, I used to work with a cook who um, literally, like, we couldn't understand him. Like, he did a great job, but we, like... Just he had a southern accent that was so pronounced that it took a long time to figure out what he was saying. So like for, you know, for someone who doesn't even speak English, uh, like as their first language, I could see that being tough for them to communicate back and forth a lot. So. Yeah. Yep. So what was going on was Deborah lacks her daughter was around like 24 when they were doing these blood tests and they asked her to come back and she was like, I'm going to have the same shit my mom had because Henrietta was around 30 when she died. So Deborah was like, I'm not going to make it to 30. I'm going to get whatever my mom got. Cause they don't know. They're not aware of what killed mm-hmm. her at this point. They just know she had cancer and like, and it happened so fast because of all the radium. They were like, she was fine one day and then she was dead. Like that's how the family saw it. And her kids were still like really little. So they don't really remember their mom. So everybody calls and asks them about their mom. They're like, we don't know. We were little. Like, we weren't really there. So there's there's this inherent distrust of white people, doctors, and reporters. Because the doctors fucked up their mom. And then white reporters want to know about it later. But not in, like, a nice way. Not in, like, a empathetic way. In a way where I'm like, I'm going to write this and get famous. Do you know what I mean? They yeah, in, in a way that would do something for them, but wouldn't do something for the family at all. <laughs> yeah. And so then they figured out that Deborah, the daughter, figured out that the medical records, which they had never seen, had been given to reporters. So they find all this like media written about her mom. And this is what she found. This is what they found. This is how they found out everything about what happened to their mom. 
Okay. No one in Henrietta's family had ever seen those medical records, let alone given anyone at Johns Hopkins permissions to release them to a journalist for publication in a book the whole world could read. Then, without warning, Deborah turned the pages of Gold's book and, and stumbled on details of her mother's demise. Excruciating pain, fever, and vomiting. Poisons building up in her blood. A doctor writing, discontinue all medication and treatments except an analgesics. And the wreckage of Henrietta's body during the autopsy. So this is what was written in the autopsy. The dead woman's arms had been pulled up and back so that the pathologist could get at her chest. The body had been split down the middle and opened wide. Grayish-white tumor globules filled the corpse. It looked as if the inside of the body was studded with pearls. Strings of them ran over the surfaces of the litter, diaphragm, intestine, appendix, rectum, and heart. Thick clusters were heaped on top of the ovaries and fallopian tubes. The bladder area was the worst, covered by a solid mass of cancerous tissue. Oof. She got it real bad. She got it real yeah. bad. Poor lady. <sighs> okay, this is getting towards the end of the book. Um, more than 30 years after Henrietta's death, research on HeLa cells finally helped uncover how her cancer started and why her, her cells never died. In 1984, a German virologist named Harold Zurhausen discovered a new strain of sexually transmitted virus called the human papillomavirus 18 or HPV 18. He believed it in HPV-16, which he discovered a year earlier caused cervical cancer. HeLa's cells in his lab tested positive for HPV-18 strain, but Zerhausen requested a sample of Henrietta's original biopsy from Hopkins. Um, the sample didn't just test positive. It showed that Henrietta had been infected with multiple copies of HPV-18, which turned out to be one of the most vir vir virulent, virulent strains of the virus. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's the end of me quoting the book at you. So now we can just talk about it if you'd like. But yeah. And then another thing from this book is that no one had told her that these radium treatments were going to make her infertile. And she asked them and they were like, oh, no, you can't have any more kids. And she was like, why did nobody tell me that? Like, this just, it's, it's just... So that's Henrietta Lacks and it's very bad. And that's why there's so many like codes of ethics and stuff going on. Probably with like, I would, I'm hoping with doctors and I have like a 30 page document that I need to like know by heart, which has become very easy because we talk about in every single class called the code of ethics. And it just talks about like consent, importance of human relationships, and like just making sure that your first priority above all else is your client. The issue of consent being informed consent is very important because you can't consent to something if you don't know what you're consenting to. I mean, and that is very well outlined in this. So, yeah, it's, it's very uh, important. very well outlined in class too because we have done so i'm in my third week of school for this semester and we're on week two of ethics and research so it was ethics and research part one and ethics and research part two so it's like ethical um standards but we talked about this and we're talking about um we have to go through like a whole i had to get like certified training to say that i'd gone through this uh, program that talks about like how you do consent with prisoners and how that works because they're a vulnerable population mm -hmm. and like all the breakdowns of like what consent looks like in the Belmont report which is another it's like another consent thing that came from you know bad stuff so yeah and it just talks about 
how you need to let people know exactly what they're doing, what you're doing with them. There can only be a certain level of deception because sometimes you need to do studies where people don't know why they're doing something and you're actually studying something else. So Malcolm Gladwell talks about um, a study of people who had ancestry of people who grew up in the South. So it might not be that you are from the South, but like you had it in your DNA Mm -hmm. and the study, they thought the study was going to be in a room, but the study was actually taking place in the hallway on the way to the room. So he was studying. um, Somebody would bump into a guy on his way to go to the room and most guys would be like, okay, whatever. But the guys from the South would actually have like a raised heart rate. Cause they looked at it when they got to the room. That was the actual study part. <laughs> they like had a raised heart rate and like had a very visceral reaction to people like physically bumping into them when she was like, Oh, that's interesting. So sometimes this, there's a level of deception, but it can't be so much that it's dangerous. And I'm, and I would think that like in that study, then after that happens and after you get the data you need, you would then be like, so we were studying you and you walked down the hallway and like, this is going to be included in this, et cetera. Like, Mm -hmm. like that would be a part of it. And, and that makes sense. And that is ethical. Um, Yeah. So yeah, like, like that kind of thing that makes sense. Um, It does not make sense at all to take anyone's cells. And also like, uh, just for anyone out there who might make the argument like, oh, well, you know, cells from a tumor, like, what were they going to do with it anyway? You know, like, like, remember, they also took cells from her cervical wall as as well. Like, this wasn't just, oh, I'm just going to take a little bit of this tumor they're taking out anyway. Like, it was, it was actually going in and, pers- and like, <laughs> you know, very purposefully taking this woman's um, cells, not just the unhealthy ones. Um, so, yeah. And... Fuck. This was common practice. The only reason hers were important was because they wouldn't die. Like people didn't care when like she had to like, when Mary, the lady I talked about had to like store the HeLa cells because most other ones had died, which means that there had been hundreds of other cells that they had gotten from people without their consent from the colored ward of Johns Hopkins hospital, which there's a whole other part in the book about how Johns Hopkins was founded by a white guy who had like, who understood racism. He was not racist and he made it purposefully in a black neighborhood to be like, I want people to be able to come to the hospital and they don't have to pay any money. And people who do have money, that money should go towards people who can't pay. He wanted this for black people. That's why he made Johns Hopkins Hospital. So the fact that this is happening at that hospital sucks. That's really shitty. <laughs> yeah, there's like so Just many found it as like a charity this. hospital. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and so, also there's there's not like a good way to like put a bow on this either because it's not like we can say, Oh, and then in the end, like the family was paid or whatever. No. Well, Um, I mean, people do know her name now and (laughs) her family knows. So that's something. Did they get any kind of. Rebecca Skloot, the author is now the president and founder of the Henrietta Lacks foundation. 
So she did start a foundation in the name of Henrietta Lacks. It, there is a tiny bow, Rebecca. And the fact that this book exists and people know about it now, that's a good thing. So That's true. I'm so glad I was made to read this book and that we have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to read it at some point, too. I've got... I've got a bunch of books I'm going to read, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a very, very important story. And and really, it literally affects everyone who's listening to this. Like, that's just the crazy thing. And like, that's a lot of things don't affect absolutely everyone, but like, this really does. So, yeah. If you were a lady, if you were a female growing up, um, or like you were a young person in the late aughts, you got the HPV <laughs> vaccine you got HeLa cells put into your body. Like, I know I got it because that shit hurt so bad. I remember getting that vaccine. I actually like, didn't. I think I like, I, I think I was, I was going to get it. And then we had to like push it back for some reason. And then I ended up being too old the next time. Like it was like, I was like on the cusp oh, when I was going to get it. And I was like, the, I was like a year too old or something. Yeah. Yeah, and do you remember all those commercials for it where it was like mm -hmm. cancer called HPV, the human papilloma virus? And I was like, whatever. And then one day my mom was like, You're getting that shot today. And I was like, okay. I hate <laughs> shots. But I was like 14 when I got it. Um, and the wow. other thing is, I would like to point out that if you have time to listen to this podcast, and if you are, I'm very grateful. But that means you also mm -hmm. have time to listen to audiobooks, of which this is one. So there you go. <laughs> it's funny that that sounded like that was going to be like a lead in to a sponsor, but of course we don't have sponsors. No. <laughs> so it's not a lead in. We're just saying like, literally you should go find the audiobook or the physical book or, you know, listen to all of the podcasts about Henry Adelax. Cause there, there are more of them out there. Um, I, I, Oh, this. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, oh, do you have more to say about about this particular story, or should we go into the Patreon stuff? Because I don't want to forget. We can go into the Patreon stuff. We're talking about it in class tonight, so I might have more debriefing notes next week. Um, All right, but yeah, yeah, everybody should imbibe this book somehow into your person. <laughs> you heard her imbibe this book. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the. It's just the story of uh, Henrietta Lacks in a very, um, very condensed version. But yeah, definitely this book sounds amazing. Um, Hope highly recommends it. I will recommend it upon her recommendation. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and thank you all for listening. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we are on Instagram at VKOE pod. Uh, sorry, VKOE underscore pod. We're on Twitter at vague of. You could literally be our eighth follower because we have seven right now because I can't crack the Twitter thing. We have like 400 and some followers on Instagram and seven on Twitter. I, it's weird. I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, so come over to Twitter, be our eighth follower. Um, then <laughs> you can also email us at uh, VKOEpod at gmail.com. Um, and also we have a Patreon uh, and we Ooh. talked about our Patreon a little bit in the last episode, the video game episode, but um, do want to mention it again. Uh, you are of course supporting us just by listening to this. So that's great. But if you have a couple bucks you want to throw our way, we do have, um, we do have some, 
uh, two of the tiers have merch in them. Um, and that's just because I wanted to create some like lower level tiers that are like $3 and $5. And those ones you get like online stuff, um, like, like bonus content and things like that. And you'll get your name shouted out in the podcast. And then the, the higher levels, um, and you can go on to patreon.com and look at all this, but the higher levels have um, some merchandise attached. I talked a little bit more about that um, in our last podcast, but you should check it out. Um, yeah, you are also helping just by listening. Yeah. I also want to talk about the fact that in Jamestown, in their police department, they have a comfort dog named Hope, who's a little retriever. And it's my Patronus, and I've never been so excited to share a name with something. <laughs> yeah, I, I've that actually up on our instagram story so there's a little a little thing um of little hope the puppy there and uh and also the jamestown police department i looked on their instagram and it looks like it's fairly new they don't have a lot of pictures like they have like maybe like 60 to 80 mm -hmm. or whatever you know like so it's like okay maybe they started it within the last year and like eight of the pictures are are no, it's like 50 pictures and like eight of them are of hope. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously. Very good girl. <laughs> oh. So, oh, I bet her uh, paws are just like so much bigger than her body and like, uh, oh, God. God. Puppies. Uh, okay. So, so, this week at work in puppy news, we had an 11 week old Mastiff come in. He's 40 pounds, he's a big oh. boy. And I love Mastiff. <laughs> this little baby. Okay. Oh, well, I'm, I'm very sweaty now. I don't know about you, but I got I got hot. Hope's homework hot mad corner <laughs> this week. <laughs> yeah, I I was listening to uh, like uh, some other podcasts about um, Henrietta Lacks and I cannot remember the name of the one that I really liked but I will put the name at the end in another separate little recording because it was a really good podcast and I think that that person should be uh, shouted out to uh, but yeah I definitely got super hot mad about it I was um, I was putting away uh, <laughs> I, I was like rotating stock and like putting stuff away at work um, like big cans and stuff and I was just like moving boxes around like <gasps> oh like and I was so Getting glad healthy. no one was in there because they would have been like why is she so pissed about putting away groceries <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, so this week I should have figured out something to shout out to, but I didn't. Um, I'm going to shout out to Rebecca Skloot for getting this book put together and for my professors for making me read it. So, all right. That's what I'm going to shout out to Henrietta Lacks and her family. And we're very sorry for what has been done. That's about <laughs> the end of where we're at today. And I am Rosie, and facts matter. I'm Hope, and now that you know better, please be better, especially if you work with human subjects and you work in the medical community, or, you know, if you deal with people, just be better. Just be better. That's all. <laughs>